Welcome to Beyond the White Coat. I'm David Scorton, President and CEO of the Association of American Medical Colleges. Today, we will hear from two legal experts, including a civil rights attorney from the University of North Carolina, one of the two institutions at the center of the U.S. Supreme Court's recent decision on race-conscious admissions. Ted Shaw is the director of the University of North Carolina's Center for Civil Rights. Previously at the University of Michigan, he helped initiate a review of its admissions policy that was later upheld in a case by the Supreme Court. Ted is joined by the AAMC's chief legal officer, Frank Trinity, JD, to talk about the Supreme Court's most recent ruling on race conscious admissions. Frank and Ted, it's all yours. Welcome, Professor Shaw. We're delighted that you're on our podcast. Uh, we're a medical organization, so it's unusual to have a lawyer. You're not the first lawyer. My colleague Heather Alarcon was the first, but I think you're the second guest who's a lawyer. So on that note, I wanted to ask you, uh, how did you decide to become a lawyer, and how did you decide to become a civil rights lawyer? Well, um, first, uh, I appreciate you calling me Professor Shaw, but Ted is fine. Um, and I'm, I'm glad to be with you. I'm honored to be with you. How did I become a civil rights lawyer? How did I become a lawyer and a civil rights lawyer? Actually, uh, I, uh, I wanted to do civil rights work first. And I thought a lawyer, being a lawyer, was the best way to do that work, uh, given when I came along and what was going on. Um, so uh, that's how I ended up going to law school. But I'm a child of the uh, civil rights era. Uh, and uh, for me, the most important thing that was happening around me during my life uh, early years was the civil rights movement. Um, and so uh, that's what led me to law school. Great. I wanted to ask you about your time at the, the Legal Defense Fund, which is the country's preeminent civil rights law firm. You were the fifth leader of the LDF. The first was Thurgood Marshall. Can you talk about your experience at LDF? I can, uh, of course. Uh, Although I, uh, I'm compelled to say that uh, I am very much aware that for me, uh, I was at the Legal Defense Fund for about 25, 26 years in total. Uh, the best part of being at the Legal Defense Fund was doing the, the work, the cases for me. Uh, yes, I was the fifth director counsel. Uh, by the time I was in that position, in some ways that job had changed significantly to run any organization. Uh, it, the primary responsibility of the leader of the organization is the board, its administrative work, etc. cetera. Um, so uh, for me, uh, working at the Legal Defense Fund. I loved being a litigator and doing the cases, and it was an extraordinary place to work. Uh, my colleagues were uh, extraordinary people, and when I say that, I'm not just talking about the lawyers, I'm talking about the full staff, uh, and we were in the center uh, 
of many of the most important issues from my perspective uh, of our time. Um, and it's a great organization and institution. You're right, it, it's the first public interest law firm uh, in the country and now uh, there are so many uh, and uh, when I say so many of the public interest uh, law firms, uh, there are the ones that are uh, progressive or liberal, there are very conservative ones, uh, but it set the mold, it set the pattern. Uh, and it was, uh, uh, other than my children and family, uh, my wife, uh, when, I, when I look back at the um, end of my life, if I do any looking back, the thing I think I'll be most proud about uh, is my years at the Legal Defense Fund. So the AMC is an academic medical association. We represent academic medicine. And I wanted to ask you about your decision to become a professor, uh, both at Michigan and yeah. at North Carolina. Yeah, so uh, when I got out of law school, uh, and I wanted to be, as I said, a civil rights lawyer, and there were two places I wanted to work. And I was blessed to work in both places, the first one uh, is the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. The other one was the Legal Defense Fund. I never uh, gave a thought to teaching. The last thing I wanted to do when I graduated from law school was to come back in any way uh, to uh, law school. So I hadn't planned on that, but uh, I found myself while I was at the Legal Defense Fund asked to uh, teach as an adjunct, and so I started doing some of that. Uh, and there came a point at which I was contacted by uh, the University of Michigan Law School. The short of it was they wanted me to teach. I said, I can't do that right now. I had just moved to LA to set up a West Coast office for the Legal Defense Fund. And they asked me, how long before you, uh, you'll be done uh, with that mission? And I said, ah, you know, three or four years or whatever. Uh, and they did contact me, and that led to me um, uh, teaching at the University of Michigan Law School, but also being recruited by a number of others. And so that was my path into teaching law school. Although I only was at Michigan for three years, I planned to stay there, but got pulled back by the Legal Defense Fund to be the uh, Associate Director Counsel, a number two position, and then in time uh, moved on to the uh, Director Counsel position. So I wanted to ask you some questions about race conscious admissions, which I know you've been involved in that issue in one way or another your entire career. A little bit. <laughs> so on the eve of the oral argument in the Harvard UNC case, I heard you speak at a rally and you reflected on when you were a law student, the Bakke decision came out. And for our audience, the, in the Bakke case, the court rejected affirmative action as a, a remedial action uh, to redress societal discrimination and said only that in, in a signal that perhaps uh, the, the uh, educational benefits of diversity might justify limited consideration of race. Can you talk about how you reacted to that decision when it came down in 1978? Well, uh, I was a rising second year student. Um, I had been on the national board of 
the Black American Law Students Association at the time. Now it's just Black Law Students Association. And we had focused on the Baki case all that year. Uh, so I knew how important it was. Uh, I was working here in Washington for the summer and uh, the case hadn't been announced yet. I don't remember how I found my way into getting a, a seat in the Supreme Court that day. But I was there on June 28th of uh, 1978 when Baki was announced. I left the court just devastated because it was clear to me that for African Americans in many ways, Baki was a loss. And uh, my view on that hasn't changed uh, over the years, uh, which is an odd thing to say for somebody who spent so much time defending uh, Baki. Um, but the rationale that Justice Powell articulated, the diversity rationale, is not the original rationale uh, for institutions to uh, consciously work to admit African-American students and other students of color, people from groups who historically have been excluded. Uh, the original rationale was uh, an equal protection rooted or based uh, 14th Amendment rationale to remedy that history of discrimination and exclusion. Uh, Blocky, or I should say Powell's rationale was rooted in the First Amendment interest, not of uh, the students who had been from groups that had been excluded, but uh, in the First Amendment interest in higher educational institutions uh, and enrolling diverse groups of students. It's a very different rationale, although overlapping and connected. Uh, so I didn't know how much, um, how much that diversity rationale could carry. But also there were some things lost uh, in Powell's rationale and Baki for African Americans in particular that in many ways have never been recovered. And there's some things that Baki said, or Powell's opinion said in Baki, that I thought then and I continue to think were just wrong or incorrect. So uh, uh, it was not uh, a clear victory. And yet, for the next uh, 25 years until Gruder, uh, and then uh, another 20-some odd years, uh, you know, the diversity rationale uh, carried a lot. And uh, I support it, but I still support it as a, in many instances, not in all, uh, a second best alternative for reasons that, uh, that um, I still believe in. So it's now three months since the Supreme Court issued the decision in Harvard-UNC. And in that case, the court has significantly changed the legal framework for admissions. How are you processing that decision now? Still processing it. Um, still trying to uh, uh, get a, uh, a handle on what it's going to mean. I don't think we know yet. Uh, you know, while I think it's true that uh, that the majority opinion, uh, the Chief Justice's opinion, 
left the door open uh, to uh, uh, diversity efforts that can consider uh, minority applicants, uh, people of color, and what uh, that status has meant in their life, in their essays, for example, uh, it's clear that a significant part of the court uh, wants to and intended to close the door to any consideration of race uh, under what I consider to be the mistaken uh, uh, and uh, I think largely false premise that uh, race consciousness equals racism, uh, which I think is a, a false equation. What it's going to mean, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, but we have some experience already in some states uh, with what these kinds of decisions mean. Uh, and it's a mixed bag. Uh, some of it's not good. The AMC filed an amicus brief in, in the Harvard UNC case. And yeah. We made the argument that a diverse healthcare workforce is needed yeah. for the country's health. Yeah. Um, but some have argued that there's a conflict between the notion of, of merit and diversity. What, what do you make of that argument? Well, a couple of things that, uh, well, there's actually not a couple of things. There's a lot to be said about that. Uh, one, um, is the question of what is merit? What constitutes merit? How do we measure it? Uh, but not only that, uh, how do we define merit in a world in which uh, the way into these opportunities and these institutions uh, is very uneven uh, for people from uh, different backgrounds? Uh, so a couple of things about this. Uh, one is that many Americans are deeply invested in uh, the notion that merit is largely, if not exclusively, measured by standardized tests. And standardized test makers won't even tell you that. In fact, they will say that uh, to use standardized tests as the sole criterion for admissions and high-stakes decision is a misuse of that test and an abuse of those tests. Most Americans don't know that, and even if they're told that, they resist it, they don't want to believe it, etc. cetera. Uh, so there's that whole piece. Uh, but how do we measure merit uh, f from uh, the standpoint and looking at people who uh, have uneven uh, privileges, uh, uneven experience in terms of the schools that they go to in grade school, uh, in high school, uh, what opportunities they have, whether they can um, uh, be exposed to taking uh, uh, standardized test prep or uh, AP courses and things like that. Um, it's a very complex set of issues that I think we have to talk about. Uh, I will say without hesitation that for African Americans in particular, and we don't live in a kind of biracial world, uh, never did, but certainly America at one time was more of that than it is now. 
But the point I'm making is that um, for African Americans in particular, uh, the uh, experience of uh, the schools that, the public schools that many of us go to, uh, the opportunities we have there is very different. And then on top of that, uh, we know that the strongest correlation that standardized test scores have uh, is with the educational level of parents and also uh, the uh, economic status of parents. Uh, and we know that African Americans are uh, uh, disproportionately uh, economically unprivileged. The mayor of Boston, who uh, happens to be an Asian American woman, uh, has talked a lot these days about how the median wealth of white families in Boston is about $247,000. Uh, the median wealth of black families in Boston is $8. That's an extraordinary difference, but that's not atypical. Um, so we act as if there's an even playing field uh, when we come to this issue of merit. Is anything but that? Those are good points. And my colleague, uh, Dr. Allison Whalen, he's, she's uh, said in connection with merit for medical school applicants, academic credentials are necessary but not sufficient, and that medical schools are looking for bedside manner, uh, leadership skills, professionalism. And so that's why um, medical schools take a holistic review, an individualized review, yeah. and they're looking for the next generation of physicians. Yeah, and if I may, um, and I realize I talk too much, but uh, one of the things that Baki got wrong, there's a passage in there when Powell, with all due respect, um, said that the assumption that, uh, that UC Davis Med School made was that if you had admitted black and brown students that you would end up with more of those physicians serving in black and brown communities that are underserved. And um, Powell, in a way that I think was a little indignant, said, why would you make that assumption? There's nothing that, that suggests that those students um, would be uh, more likely to serve in those contexts. Uh, I thought it was wrong when it was decided, but uh, that's, I think, been blown away now. It's been disproven. And one of the studies that recently came out had to do with women uh, who uh, have uh, black women who have doctors uh, that are physicians, access to physicians who are black and brown, that they uh, have different health results uh, than uh, other doctors. This stuff does matter. It does, it does make a difference. So. Absolutely, and, and there's a growing body of evidence suggesting that a diverse healthcare workforce does lead to better health outcomes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask about uh, looking ahead with the Supreme Court. There's a case that might be heard by the Supreme Court next term. TJ. Thomas yeah. Jefferson uh, yeah. School of Science and Technology in Fairfax yes, County, yeah. yes. right down the road here. So in that case, uh, the school board, they opened up uh, slots for public school students yeah. more, more broadly. 
they put more focus on socioeconomic status and they yeah. dropped an admissions test yeah. and they've been sued. Now those yeah. measures were race neutral and they were upheld by the Fourth Circuit, but that was before the Harvard UNC case. So does the TJ case concern you? It does. Uh, and uh, what you've just outlined goes back to what I was saying about uh, what people believe about standardized tests. It's not that they don't have a place in the world, but uh, the notion is that that's the sole measure. Um, uh, and so I am concerned about that. And the individual who uh, was behind the Harvard and the UNC cases, uh, Ed Bloom, has made it clear that he is going to challenge everything and anything that he considers to be a proxy for race. So even if you have race-neutral policies adopted, if he deems them uh, to be adopted because uh, an institution or people think that it's going to result in uh, uh, more or continued admission of black and brown students, uh, he's going to challenge it. By the way, same individual who challenged an enormously important part of the Voting Rights Act that was struck down uh, the operating formula for Section 5 in 2013, he has an agenda. And I won't say more than that at this point, but uh, for me it's clear. So yes, I'm concerned about TJ. I'm concerned about uh, you know where I uh, grew up in New York City, uh, Stuyvesant High School. Um, the only criterion for admissions at Stuyvesant is a standardized test. The test makers go to the bank on these tests, but if you press them, they will tell you that uh, it is a misuse of a standardized test to make it the sole criterion for admissions in high-stakes admissions. Not that it doesn't have its place, but there's a lot of misuse of standardized tests and abuse, and so I think we're going to see a round of uh, litigation um, coming up that uh, includes, or if not centers on that issue. No, I think our medical schools would agree with that last point, Ted. Every year, at least 15% of the highest MCAT scores and GPAs, those applicants do not get into any medical school. And why is that? Well, to get into medical school, you must be interviewed. And probably during the interview process, the schools see that there are better candidates for bedside manner and altruism and professionalism. And they're the ones that are getting in. I wanted to move from race conscious admissions to take a little higher vantage point. So our CEO David Scorton, Dr. David Scorton, um, he's urged our community in the public space to try to be kind, empathetic, to, to listen to the other side, to be open to other opinions, while speaking out on issues of importance to us. Now, it's clear the country is divided, and there's a lot of vitriol out there. And yet you have been on many panels with people that have diametrically opposed opinions to you. Is that because you're a professor, or is something more going on there? Well, uh, I've done it for a number of reasons. Um, yes, being a professor, I think uh, there are compelling reasons to engage in those kinds of 
uh, programs and exchanges. Um, but I've always believed that it's important to talk with uh, people with whom we d disagree. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a, um, there's a dialectical process that I think uh, is worth engaging in. Uh, I think we're all better uh, for doing that, and uh, the hope is that it moves us to a, a higher uh, plane or place when we engage in social discourse. Uh, uh, I am very concerned with where the country is now uh, in uh, existential ways, you know, democracy. Uh, but uh, uh, even more, um, just how we treat each other as uh, citizens and, uh, and others who live in this country. Um, we are in a very dangerous place. Now, having said that, uh, even I am struggling now. Uh, you know, the, one of the places that I went, I probably won't name it, uh, I would go to their national conventions regularly. Um, part of it, uh, maybe this was arrogance, I was thinking that there shouldn't be any uh, places where uh, what they were saying um, were not exposed to other views. Um, but also, as I said, I believe in um, being exposed to other people's views. But I'm concerned with uh, some of the ways even this organization um, has uh, gone about its business in recent years, and so I've struggled because I don't want to be a fig leaf for some of what they've done. Uh, so maybe I won't go to their functions anymore, but I will still talk with others with whom I will disagree. Uh, I, I hope that we can find a better place, but when, uh, uh, when the country is uh, being led by folks who don't even talk to one another, uh, that's hard to do. I wanted to ask about some of the anti-DEI legislation that's being proposed. And according to the Chronicle of Higher Education, 40 bills in 22 states have been yeah. uh, proposed and seven have passed, which would essentially prohibit or limit uh, diversity, equity, inclusion offices or staff or training. In our community, this is causing great moral distress. Yeah. And I'd like to get your perspective. What, what would you say to those in our community who are witnessing this or, or being directly affected by these state yeah. legislations? Well, I hope they remain committed to what is the essence of, uh, you know, diversity and uh, inclusion initiatives. I mean, this is um, the notion that we somehow are going to be cowed and um, and frightened out of uh, inclusion work. Uh, that's I don't even know what to say about that. It's so deeply troubling. Uh, but I hope that commitment uh, remains, no matter what. Uh, state legislatures say, although I know that we have to deal with the laws and uh, we have to be careful about how we go about our business in this world in which uh, we see a lot of regressive 
court decisions, but also legislative measures that are being enacted. Uh, this country is going to continue to change. Um, uh, change is always inevitable, but the, uh, the demographics of the country are changing, will continue to change. Uh, for some people, that's made them unhinged, uh, which uh, explains a lot of what we've seen in recent years. But that change will continue. The notion that we don't uh, respect each other and that there are groups of people who are excluded, not included, et cetera, is, is just um, a form of, uh, of I think, um, a societal suicide. Uh, so I just hope that uh, we find a way to remain committed uh, to, these, um, to these principles, not just out of altruism. Altruism is a wonderful thing. Uh, uh, I think, uh, but what's more reliable is self-interest. And uh, there are a lot of compelling reasons based in self-interest uh, that um, we should continue this work. Uh, that's why all these amici briefs, including you know, yours, uh, were filed in the uh, SFFA cases and before that in the Fisher cases and in Michigan and et cetera. So um, this is a matter of self-interest. Uh, my colleague Jeffrey Young is, Dr. Jeffrey Young is helping the ANC to support and promote pathway programs. Um, these are programs where going all the way down to middle school, and they encourage students who might be from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds who might uh, not otherwise think of themselves as having a future in medicine or science. When the Harvard-UNC case came out, at one of these programs, some of the kids were asking, is there a future for us in medicine and science after this decision? What would you say to those students? Yes. <laughs> I would say there is a future. Um, there may be those who uh, may want to challenge that. Um, but. Uh, I think that they are on the wrong side of history. Um, and even a Supreme Court decision um, isn't in many ways the last word. Uh, I think about, um, you know, I read this biography, wonderful biography, a few years ago by David Blight of Frederick Douglass. Uh, and when I got to the point in that book where uh, Dred Scott was decided, and I thought about Dred and Harriet Scott returned to uh, enslavement uh, because of that decision, and uh, the Chief Justice of the United States, you know, that same Supreme Court, another era, uh, saying that uh, black people had no rights, that white people were bound to respect, but not only that, that the Founding Fathers never intended that anyone of African descent can be a citizen. Think about the despair in that moment. Uh, you know, uh, uh, free African Americans uh, in the North and the West and all over the country, and including some free African Americans as free as they could be in the South, were told they could never be citizens. I mean, the case went far beyond what it should have decided. But what a moment of despair that was. Sometimes you can't see your way forward, 
But eight years later, slavery was dead in its grave. Uh, took a civil war, but that's what happened. And another few years later, the 14th Amendment was enacted. Uh, you can't tell. All you can do is fight in the moment. I often say that if you fight, you may win, you may lose. But if you don't fight, you can't win. And so my point is, is that we don't know the path forward. Um, but we cannot give up hope. Uh, you got to keep fighting. These children have a future and a place uh, if it's in the medical profession that they want to do it. One way or another, it's going to happen. Uh, but we all have to keep fighting to make sure that that's true. We don't know how it's going to happen, but I believe it's going to happen. That's the essence of hope. Wow. Well, what gives me hope from the perspective of AMC is the courage in which our, our medical schools and teaching hospitals met COVID. And even since before, we have things called medical legal partnerships mm -hmm. where physicians and lawyers and mm -hmm. social workers are addressing the health needs of their patients, which medicine's only a part of the solution. Mm -hmm. And then the, right. pas the passion that our community has to train the next generation of physicians, that, that gives me hope. Um, you've given us all hope over your career, Ted, and I wanna thank you for spending time with us today. Well, thank you, uh, Frank, and I can't tell you how much uh, uh, part of my hope comes from not only young people, but you know, folks like you all, like you, who are doing this work and who believe in this, um, I believe that, uh, I believe we'll prevail even if we have these difficult moments. Thank you. Okay, thank, thank you. you.